Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we together study the Come Follow Me curriculum for July 20th through the 26th. And this week's lesson covers chapters 36 through 38 in Alma. Well, for those of you uh, watching, you can see that I am clearly not in my office in central Hong Kong, but I did make it back to the U.S. last week. It was uh, quite a journey with a few uh, changes in flights uh, due to different government regulations because the world is crazy right now. And my return flight in late August has already been canceled, so I'll have to find something new. But that's just part of traveling internationally uh, in the corona world. Uh, as a, an update in Hong Kong, they've had a spike in new cases. I saw they had over 100 yesterday, so in typical Hong Kong, Hong Kong fashion, they are uh, freaking out about that uh, and uh, canceling everything, including church services, unfortunately. So we're kind of back to uh, square zero um, we're, uh, in, in Hong Kong. So... Uh, there we go. But uh, I'm in the U.S., and hopefully wherever you are, you are safe and healthy as well. Well, as a reminder, in last week's lesson, we started, uh, we, we covered the chapters of 32 through 35, and the focus of that lesson, you'll recall, was uh, in chapter 32, Alma distinguishes between knowledge on the one hand and, and faith on the other hand, and the importance that uh, are, are that we give way uh, for faith in our lives, that we're not so uh, consumed by the quest for knowledge and knowing things and being certain uh, about things, that it's not just an intellectual pursuit, but rather we leave room for faith, leave room for the uncertain things, leave room for the, the spiritual things that cannot be uh, logically deduced, but rather uh, require our faith, uh, but rather require uh, trusting God uh, in order to move forward, and that's what and that's what faith is. And uh, we we talked about how the obviously our faith should focus on Jesus Christ, and that was some of the latter chapters, especially those taught by Amulek. Well, in today's chapters, we get Alma's very personal testimony, uh, and, and he shares it in the form focusing on his conversion story. Uh, that he shares with his sons. Uh, chapters 36 and 7 are his, uh, his testimony that he shares with his son Helaman. And then chapter 38 is a very short chapter that he shares with his son uh, Shiblon. At least the record we have is short. My, my guess is he probably shared something significantly longer. He just didn't record it, probably because it would have been very repetitive of what uh, was in chapters 36 and 37. But, um, but again, the focus is we get Alma's very intimate, his very personal testimony that he shares with his family members and gives us some insights and goes into a little more depth uh, than he does in, uh, in other places in the scriptures. And then we'll also see 
you, you may be familiar with the, uh, the, the, the idea that chapter 36 uh, uses this beautiful uh, uh, he, Hebraic uh, literary device called a chiasmus, and we'll talk about uh, why he used that and kind of break down that a little bit. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it serves several purposes. One, it's a cool literary device that really, uh, from my point of view, there's, there's no way Joseph Smith or anyone in his time uh, could have known about. Um, but even, even then, the way that the device is used is very, very powerful uh, and can help us better understand both the importance of conversion and the plan of salvation. So with that, let's get started in chapter 36. And uh, we'll begin by uh, discussing verse 1. My son, give, hear, give ear to my words, for I swear unto you that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. I've talked in other places that I personally am not one that believes in the pro- notion of the prosperity gospel. That is, if you, if you keep the commandments, uh, you are going to uh, have success, or at least uh, especially financial or worldly success. We know that the commandments are not intended to bring us worldly success. Now, certainly there is a correlation where if you make good choices in life, uh, and and the commandments certainly will lead you to make good choices, then you're much more likely to have a a stable and, uh, you know, financially at least secure, not necessarily wildly successful, but certainly a a secure life in terms of uh, material or worldly things go if you keep the commandments. No doubt about that. But I think sometimes we we get in this mindset that, well, if we keep the commandments, then certainly God will bless me. And, and usually the most obvious blessings that we would uh, either recognize or look for might be uh, worldly blessings. And I guess that's one way to potentially read verse 1. And obviously this is something that's repeated throughout the Book of Mormon. This idea, if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. But I don't think that's the type of prospering that, uh, that Alma is referring to. I think when we talk about prospering here, we're talking about uh, fulfilling the measure of our creation. Coming for the reason... Uh, that God uh, sent us down here to earth. And of course, that is so that we can progress and we can become like him. So as we keep the commandments, we will prosper in the, uh, in, in, in the way that we will develop and become the type of person that God wants us to become. And I think that's what we mean when we talk about prospering. Okay, and now uh, verse 3. And now, O my son Helaman, behold, thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech of thee that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. For I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. Well, at this verse 3, if anyone who believed in a prosperity gospel or the idea that if we keep the commandments, then life will be, you know, rainbows and butterflies and happiness, well, I think verse 3 kind of puts that to bed. Uh, As Alma says that, you know, you you put your trust in God, you keep the commandments, not so that you will have no trials and no afflictions in your life, but rather because you trust that God will support you through those trials and afflictions and those troubles in your life. And that's the purpose of keeping the commandments and putting our, our trust in God and having faith in God. And I love this idea of putting trust in God, because to me, that's, that's what faith is. And, it, and it, it very well contrasts the difference between knowledge and faith. You can know a lot of things, but do you trust those things that, that you know? Uh, I heard the story 
uh, once of, and it's probably hypocritical, but but I don't think it matters of a uh, you know a, a tightrope walker who uh, you know put a tightrope uh, high above uh, connecting two buildings and would go out and perform different tricks, carrying different devices as he was walking across this tightrope. And people could see, people knew that this man, it was clear by you know using your eyes and observing and by, by testing him, it was very clear that this man uh, was unbelievably skilled at walking on a tightrope and could really do whatever he wanted. And then he raised the question, do you think I could carry a person across? And everyone's like, yeah, certainly, absolutely you could. And then he asked for volunteers. And at that point, obviously nobody raised their hands. They didn't, even though they knew that he could do it, they didn't have that trust in him. And, and that, in my mind, helps to illustrate the difference between knowledge on one hand and intellectual pursuit uh, carried out by scientific method or by trial and error, and then trust on the other hand. And we are commanded to have faith in Jesus Christ. We are to trust Christ that he will carry us through our afflictions and through our troubles. Uh, Verse 4, And I would not that ye think that I know of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal mind, but of God. So this is carrying on that distinction between uh, knowledge and faith, between the carnal or the things of the world, the temporal things, or the, the mind of God, the spiritual things. And again, the things of the world, you can, you can know them through the scientific method. You can do experiments upon them. You can observe with your eyes. You can, you can touch them. That's how worldly knowledge is acquired. And thank goodness for that knowledge. It's certainly, you know, through that knowledge, uh, we as humanity have obviously made huge progresses, especially in the past few years as we've gained incredible technologies and, and knowledge and insight as to how, how this beautiful world works. But that's only that type of knowledge, that method is, is largely limited uh, to the temporal or to the carnal world. When it comes to spiritual things, it's a different type of knowledge. It's a different pursuit. It's, it's more, it's, that's the realm of faith. And Alma here is about to elaborate on how he knows or how he has his testimony or how he learned to put his faith, his trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, and then so from here with that background, Alma proceeds to tell his conversion story. And that is what he uses to convey his testimony uh, to his son and to us. And uh, we're familiar with that story. You know, we learn about it in the end of Mosiah, about the angel that came and uh, you know, struck him dumb for three days. And he came out of that a completely changed and different person. But here he goes into some more intimate details about how that change took place. Starting in verse 9. And he's talking here in verse 9 about uh, the angel that came to him and the message that was delivered to him. And he said unto me, If thou wilt of thyself be destroyed, seek no more to destroy the church of God. Okay, so that was the warning. That was the message that the angel gave to him. He says, if you want to destroy yourself, that's fine. But stop trying to destroy my church. And Alma's reaction to that warning, I find, is very, very interesting. In verse 11, he tells us, 
And the angel spake more things unto me, which were heard by my brethren, but I did not hear them. For when I heard the words, if thou wilt be destroyed of thyself, seek no more to destroy the church of God, I was struck with such great fear and amazement, lest perhaps I should be destroyed, that I fell to the earth and did hear no more. I love this. I love this honesty of Alma. He, he apparently had been going about destroying, you know, trying to undo uh, the church that his father had, had been uh, busy establishing, uh, thinking that he was, you know, what he was doing really had no consequences. Then all of a sudden this angel came to him and said, look, you're destroying yourself. That's cool if that's what you want to do, but leave my church alone. But Alma didn't hear really the rest of the message. Apparently the angel said a lot of other things that may have been convincing to the sons of Messiah uh, individually for themselves as to their own spiritual needs. But the message that Alma heard was, you're on the path to destruction. You are going to be destroyed if you keep doing this. The actions that you are taking have eternal consequences. You are in trouble if you keep this up. And as soon as Alma heard this, he didn't hear anything else. That was it for him. Boom, he was out uh, and, and he, he was terrified. He decided that this was not destruction was not something that he wanted uh, in his life. And so he needed to make a few changes. Uh, Verses 13 through 16. Yea, I did remember all my sins and iniquities for which I was tormented with the pains of hell. Yea, I saw that I had rebelled against my God and that I had not kept his holy commandments. Yea, and I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. Yea, and in fine, so great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. Oh, thought I, that I could be banished and become extinct, both body and soul, that I might not be brought to stand in the presence of my God, to be judged of my deeds. And now for three days and for three nights was I racked even with the pains of a damned soul." I think the way that Alma describes the the destruction that he recognized was awaiting for him here is just just beautiful and powerful. He remembers all of his sins and iniquities. He has this flashback and they all come to him. And he has this moment of unbelievable clarity. And he recognizes, he says he had murdered many of his children. And it doesn't mean he'd actually, you know, physically taken their life through violence, but rather... Uh, He had performed a a spiritual murder, apparently, because he was leading them to destruction. And as he was feeling this, the terror that was, uh, that he realized was awaiting for him, he realized the horror of uh, recognizing that he had encouraged others to put themselves in the same position that he was in, that he now was recognizing was not the position that he wanted to be in, was leading, rather leading to his destruction. And in verse 15, the thought that he wanted to be banished or, or, or extinct and not to even exist anymore rather than come into the presence of God. Uh, so clearly this is, he is a tormented soul at this point. He, he recognizes that he is in a horrible situation and that he needs salvation. And that's the key here. He recognizes that he needs a savior. At this point, he recognizes that he has put himself in a position that he cannot get out of, that he cannot go where he needs to go. He cannot become what he needs to become because of the mistakes that he has made. And as he recognizes this, he 
realizes that he is in deep trouble. 17 and 18. And it came to pass that as I was thus racked with torment, while I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins, behold, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. And now as my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. So while he's in this moment of anguish and grief and realizing, beginning to recognize the gravity of his mistakes and the dangerous situation that he is in, his thoughts turn to Jesus Christ. And why do they, why do they turn there? Because he's, his, he remembered his father had talked about Christ, had spoken about how Christ provides deliverance. So certainly a message of hope here uh, for, for parents whose, whose children uh, do not recognize Christ or are, are walking paths that they wish they would not walk. That, you know, Alma in his moment of need, he thought back and he reflected upon the things that his father had taught him about Christ. So, you know, clearly one of the things that we as parents must be teaching our children is that Christ will deliver us, that Christ will provide the escape from the, the, the torment and the pain of recognizing our own uh, humanity, humanity and our own fallen nature. Christ is the only source of that deliverance. And in his moment of need, he remembers what his father had taught about Christ. And so he, he calls upon Christ in verse 18. O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. What a beautiful cry from someone in, in absolute desperation. And you can, feel, you can feel that desperation in him. You can feel how, how far gone he feels that he is. And kind of as his last grasp, last moment, hoping for something, he calls upon Christ. And it, I think it's hard for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly hard for me as someone who's, you know, to be honest, grown up in the church, uh, never really you know, committed any major sin that required uh you know, going through this torment, certainly that Alma uh, feels that he's going through. I think sometimes it's hard for us to to recognize uh, the feelings that Alma must have felt, the precarious, the dangerous situation uh, that he was in. But I think that can be a problem because we're all in the same situation as Alma. Even though our sins might not be the same type that Alma uh, committed, and likely the reason that we're recognizing them is not because an angel warned us that we're about to be destroyed, but we too commit sin. And because we commit sin, we are in need of Christ. We are in need of salvation. We are in need of his mercy and grace and deliverance because we are in the exact same situation that Alma was in. So I love the, the New Testament stories, uh, especially touch me and, and help me to to think about that situation as you think about the the desperation of some of the uh, characters in the New Testament as they turn to Christ. Think of the woman that had the issue of blood and how she spent every last penny that she had trying to be healed. And she'd gone as far as she possibly could, done as much as she possibly could, and was ready to give up hope 
and thought, if just maybe I can touch Christ, if maybe I will just reach out to him, maybe he too will have mercy on me, as Alma cried. And of course she did. She touched the hem of his, of his garment and was healed. One can imagine the desperation that she must have felt on the one hand, because we've all been sick. We all know what it feels like to, to, to be sick, to not have our health with us, and, and how we would, in those moments of anguish and sickness, we would give anything to get back to our normal self, to get back to where we know we should be. That's something I can relate to. And so for that woman to put forward her hand and touch the Savior's garment and to be healed uh, is, is truly, uh, truly powerful and something that I can relate to is Christ is the master healer, uh, both physically while he was there and, of course, spiritually here as he goes through the process of healing Alma when he finally recognizes his own dangerous situation, that he is on the path to being destroyed, and then he turns to Christ. And at the, as soon as he does that, that is the turning point in his life. This cry, O oh Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me. That prayer right there is the turning point in his life. I think sometimes we as Latter-day Saints might look down upon those and think we do it with good intention who, who say, uh, you know, the born-agains who at least, you know, from, from our characterization of them believe that, you know, if, if you accept the name of Jesus and if you say his name, then you will be saved. Now, I, I don't, I know a few of them. I don't think any of them actually believe you just say the name Jesus and you're, sa- and you're saved. That, that's clearly ridiculous. <laughs> But what they're talking about is exactly what Alma went through. That turning point in your life and the, f- the fulcrum of that turning point is Jesus Christ. That is the, the point upon which our lives turn. When we recognize our own depravity, recognize our own, the dangerous situation that we're in, recognize that we are on the path to destruction because of the sins that we commit, And then as we turn to Jesus Christ, calling upon him, saying his holy name, that is when our lives start to change. That is when we begin to be saved. And so we can, you know, we can take a lesson from uh, from our born-again brothers and sisters. And we can take that lesson from Alma recognizing that we are in the same situation and we need to be born again. And the moment we call upon Jesus Christ is the moment that our lives change. And that is certainly the case with Alma. And as we continue reading here, we'll see as soon as he cries out to Jesus to save him, the whole narrative changes. Verses 17 and, uh, sorry, verses 19 through 21. And now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy, what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. Yea, and again I say unto you, my son, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. I love the beautiful contrast here. As deep and as powerful as was his pain, so too was as deep and as powerful was his joy. 
and that, that deep contrast uh, that we get from Alma, and it all turns upon the moment that he recognized Christ. Verse 19, remember, uh, he, in the earlier verses, in, in verse 13, he did remember all of his sins and iniquities. They all came flooding back to him in that moment of horror as soon as he recognized uh, the dangerous situation that he was in. But in verse 19, he couldn't remember them anymore. So just as powerful and as deep was his sorrow, so too was uh, as powerful and as high was the joy that came to him because he had found Christ. He had found his source of salvation. And, and again, there's, there's many ways to illustrate that. I think, you know, the healing uh, that Christ did in the New Testament. I think of the ruler who, whose, whose daughter died. I can't imagine anything more painful than to have your young child die. And in a moment, all of the, all of the hope and all of the joy and all of the potential that, that she possessed is, is taken away from you in a heartbeat. I can't imagine anything more deep and more powerful, uh, no sorrow more powerful than that. And then to have that life restored as Christ did to that young girl. I can't imagine anything more unbelievably, powerfully wonderful than to have that life that you thought was lost, that had been gone forever, to have that restored. And then all of the hopes and all of the dreams that you have before for her that had been gone the moment she passed all come back to you. Again, this contrast of deep emotions, the, the deeper we recognize our own dangerous situation. And again, I think we as Latter-day Saints sometimes struggle to recognize the situation that we're in. As deep and as dangerous as our situation, so too should our joy be that high and that powerful and that meaningful uh, because we're all in the same situation that Alma is in. We are all in need of Jesus Christ. Verses 26 and 27. For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, behold, many have been born of God and have tasted as I have tasted and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Therefore, they do know of these things which I have spoken as I do know. And the knowledge which I have is of God. And I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, in all manner of afflictions. Yea, God has delivered me from prison and from bonds and from death. Yea, I did put my trust in him, and he will still deliver me. So Alma has this trust in God because of this incredible spiritual experience that he has had. Because he put his trust in Christ. He called upon Christ for mercy to save him. And it worked. Christ saved him. Christ changed him. And so Alma has gone about the rest of his life trying to repent for the mistakes that he has made. Knowing that he has been saved. But he still recognized the importance, the importance of trying to undo the, the damage that he caused uh, from his earlier life. From his earlier mistakes. But as he does so, he goes forward with the certain knowledge that he can trust in God, that he can have faith in Jesus Christ, and that Christ will deliver him. Verse 30. But behold, my son, this is not all, for 
ye ought to know, as I do know, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. And ye ought to know also that inasmuch as ye will not keep the commandments of God, ye shall be cut off from his presence. Now this is according to his word. So we have a repeat of the first one, verse one where we started from. Uh, this, you know, this admonition that if you don't keep the command, that if you keep the commandments, you will prosper. And then here he adds a warning that if you do not keep them, you will be cut off from the presence of God. And that was the reality that he recognized when the angel came and spoke to him. Now this chapter tells this beautiful story of Alma's uh, his, his fall on the one hand and then his ascension through the atonement of Jesus Christ on the other hand. And this idea of a personal fall where we recognize that because of our sins, we are cut off from the presence of God, that we have fallen and we cannot save ourselves. This recognition is something that we all must go through. We all must go through our own personal fall. Now, the fall, of course, happens when we commit sin, but we don't necessarily recognize the fall at that time. It's not until we recognize that we have fallen, that we recognize that the consequence of our sins is that we will be cut off from the presence of God. And it is not until then that we recognize the necessity of calling upon Christ. And as we call upon Christ, that becomes the point, that fulcrum at which everything begins to change where instead of falling, we now begin ascending, the, pro the process of ascending back to the presence of God. So we have the fall on the one hand, and then the, the gradual ascension through the atonement of Jesus Christ back to the presence of God. And that is what Alma went through, as he describes here. That, of course, is what Adam and Eve went through uh, in the Garden of Eden. And, and of all the stories that could be told, that is the one that is uh, that we are reminded of when we go to the temple and go through the endowment process. And while there we are to imagine ourselves as if we are all Adam and Eve, as if we have all gone through this fall, and then we call upon the name of Christ, and it is as we do so that we are saved, that we begin the process of returning to the presence of God. So it's a beautiful process, and that is the plan of salvation. And so Alma's story of conversion is not just his own personal salvation. This is the plan of salvation that applies to each and every one of Heavenly Father's children. Now, this idea of a descent and a V-shaped ascension uh, is not only tells the plan of salvation, but it also reveals an amazing literary device that was discovered by, uh, at least in, in latter-day context, uh, by, by Jack Welch uh, years ago when he was a missionary in Germany, and it's called a chiasmus. And chiasmus, if you've heard of it, uh, you know, great, but I'll, I'll try to explain it simply, and I'll put this uh, chart here that, that illustrates uh, how the chiasmus structure works in Alma chapter 36, for those of you watching on video. And the idea of a, of a chiasmus is that it follows a, a pattern of ideas that uh, go in descending order. So if you take each idea and ascribe a letter to them, it could be idea A, idea B, C, and D, and then you have them descending, and then you repeat the ideas as you come out of the chiasmus. So you go A, B, C, D, 
and then D might repeat itself or, or, or not, and then you go back C, B, A. Um, these chiasmus uh, have been discovered in, in, in uh, ancient Hebrew writing, uh, and they're prevalent in the New Testament in, in various places. Uh, but there's a number of them throughout the Book of Mormon, and this Alma chapter 36 is, is probably the greatest example uh, of a chiasmus, because the whole chapter is just a beautiful uh, chiasmus as it presents various ideas that seem to pattern and mirror each other. Uh, an, an obvious example is verse one, is the first verse and the last verse, where Alma uh, you know repeats himself saying that if you keep the commandments, you will prosper. Well, that is the, the first idea in the, in the chiasmus. And as we come out of the chiasmus, that is the last or the, or the final idea. And the focus uh, of any chiasmus, the purpose of the chiasmus, is to recognize what is the fulcrum at the middle? What is that turning point uh, that upon which the chiasmus uh changes upon which it goes from a descending down to the ascending uh, ideas as we come out of the chiasmus. And not surprisingly, uh, in this chiasmus, it is verses 17 and 18, where Alma calls upon Jesus Christ, where he prays to him for his mercy. And so <clears throat> just as that prayer was the turning point in Alma's life, in this literary device, uh, it is also the turning point of the chiasmus. And so we see this, the structure is used to, to, to teach important principles. And so just in, in the beginning, in the, in, the, in the dissension in the chiasmus, Alma was making mistakes. Alma didn't want to be in the presence of God. Uh, his sins were deep. As soon as we get to that fulcrum, everything changes and the whole narrative of Alma's life changes just as it does in this chiasmus. So it's not only an interesting literary device that, you know, to me shows that the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, the idea that Joseph Smith or one of his associates or really anyone around there, uh, one even knew about chiasmus, I think is, is rather far-fetched, uh, but, but that they could take that concept, this, this ancient Hebrew literary device, and so beautifully weave it into the text and the story to present a powerful idea, you know, revolving around the atonement of Jesus Christ, you know, to, to believe that they could do that, to my mind, is very far-fetched. Uh, it's, it's, it's much, you know, any, any, whatever story you can come up with to explain how this has happened, and I've heard a few, uh, you know, to me, all of them fall short spectacularly. Uh, you know, this is clearly an ancient literary device that is weaved beautifully into this text that focuses and teaches and revolves around how one's life can change as they call upon Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of this chiasmus, and that is why it is so powerful and so beautiful here. And, you know, I would say if, if, if you, uh, you know, would like to hear more about this chiasmus structure, um, over at Book of Mormon Central, their, their, I saw their lesson for this week uh, actually speaks with uh, uh, Dr. Welch. His, he is one of the, the founders of Book of Mormon Central. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to know more, to, to check out their uh, Come Follow Me lesson uh, for this week. And now with that, we turn to uh, chapter 37, where Alma goes from this chiasmus telling his conversion uh, to a little more 
practical advice to his son, uh, Helaman. Helaman is going to be the one who is designated as the record keeper uh, that these that the Nephites have been keeping and passing down uh, from son to son, generation to generation, from prophet to prophet. Uh, and and now these records are going to fall upon Helaman. And Alma wants to teach him the importance of keeping the records. And he does so starting in verses 6 and 7. Now you may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And small means in many instances doth confound the wise. And the Lord God doth work by means to bring about his great and eternal purposes. And by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. A very powerful concept here, which is, you know, which is true in many areas of our lives. You know, that's the small and simple things done on a daily, consistent basis, done repeatedly over time, that have the powerful effect of, of changing lives, of, of bringing about great and important things. You know, think of a, of a river that slowly carves its way, creating a canyon. The idea of a river flowing is a very simple thing. But over time, it creates, you know, a huge, beautiful valley or canyon. Um, so you know, that's a, an example in nature. But in our own lives, certainly, we can all think of anything that, we're, that we are good at, that we are proficient at, that we are skilled at. You know, it's almost certainly that the reason that you have that skill or that proficiency is because you've practiced on a daily, on a consistent basis. You know, think of your mother. Uh, you know, when I was young, mine certainly told me to practice the piano. Unfortunately, I, I quit before I should have or before I got any good at it. Um, you know, but I see that uh, better examples in my life of people who can actually play the piano. It's not that they were born doing it, but it's because every day, or at least frequently, uh, they, they practice they made mistakes and then they overcome those mistakes by small and simple things like daily practice. And that applies to the spiritual realm as well. Uh, Elder Oaks is fond of uh, speaking of holy habits and righteous routines. And I think that's, that's, that's beautiful advice that, you know, when it comes to prayer and scripture studies and going to church and, and serving other people, uh, speaking kindly of others, these very simple things that don't seem to make a big difference on a one on you know on a day by day basis over time have spectacular and miraculous results. Now, one of the challenge of small and simple things, though, is that uh, you can very easily fall into the justification that if I miss one day, it won't really make a difference. And reality is that's probably true. If you miss one day, it won't make a difference. But if you repeatedly miss one day that won't make a difference, over time, that makes a huge difference. So small and simple things, for better or for worse, have powerful impacts over time. And that's the lesson, you know, the timeless wisdom that Alma is providing to his son. Now, he here seems to be speaking specifically uh, of the instance of keeping the records. And Alma is saying here, yeah, it's a very simple thing to write down the history of what's going on among our people. It might seem like there's not much of a purpose in doing so, but this is the way that God brings about salvation, or at least one of the means. Uh, I love verse 7. The Lord doth work by means to bring about his great and eternal purposes. God is doing stuff. God has a purpose, and God is bringing about that purpose. 
But a lot of times that purpose is brought about, that great and eternal purpose is brought about by small and simple things. And if we really think about that, it's a very, very powerful concept. You know, our salvation is in the balance, as we learn in chapter 36. And the way that we get there is by small and simple things. And Alma goes on to, to describe the plates. Um, and I think it's important to remember that uh, as he's describing the plates and the blessing that the plates have been for them, you know, sometimes we think that all of these Book of Mormon prophets were, you know, keeping these records because they saw our day and they knew what we would need. Well, I'm not, certainly that's the case with Mormon as he had watched his, was in the process of watching his, his whole people be destroyed. And he, he realized at some point that uh, they were really beyond hope and that the records that he was preparing would probably not be used by them, at least not immediately, but they would be preserved for some day in the future. And that day happens to be our day. But for Alma and Helaman, it was much more immediate uh, because they had recognized that uh, many Nephites and many Lamanites had been brought to, to know about God through the records that they had been keeping. And so they weren't necessarily looking to our day as they were, as Alma was recording these things. You know, again, Mormon later came by and compiled everything and edited them together into the Book of Mormon as we have it today. But the records that Alma and Helaman were, were keeping were very beneficial uh, to their own people at that time. But uh, Alma at the same time also realized that God could potentially use these plates to do things that were far beyond his capacity to understand. Uh, and I think that's an important lesson as well. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Now these mysteries are not yet fully made known unto me, therefore I shall forbear. And it may suffice if I only say they are preserved for a wise purpose, which purpose is known unto God. For he doth counsel in wisdom over all his works, and his paths are straight, and his course is one eternal round. So Alma here is essentially saying, God's probably going to use these records in ways that we do not understand. So it's important that we're faithful and that we're diligent in keeping them because we, we, don't, we can't guess everything that God has planned. We're not smart enough to, to know everything that he has in store. And so our job is to simply keep his commandments and, and, and you know, be, be diligent in doing the things that the Lord would have us do, even if we don't know uh, the end for which he has us doing them. That's part of having trust or having faith in God, is that sometimes you do things that you don't fully understand the reason why you're doing them, but you know that God wants them done, and so you diligently carry them out. Uh, verse 16, but if you keep the commandments of God and do with these things which are sacred according to that which the Lord doth command you, for ye must appeal unto the Lord for all things whatsoever ye must do with them, behold, no power of earth or hell can take them from you, for God is powerful to the fulfilling of all his words. Clearly, Alma is talking uh, in this instance about uh, the Lord will use his power to protect the plates so that he can fulfill his words that he has promised with them. But I think it's appropriate to, to take that same lesson and that same principle and apply it to the various areas for which we have stewardship within our lives. You know, our, our responsibilities do not involve keeping uh, ancient records that will someday be used uh, by, you know, future people as scripture. 
Uh, although I guess it's not out of the realm of possibility that maybe your journal or some other record that you're keeping will be used by future generations as a source of faith. Uh, but, but certainly, wh whatever we have uh, stewardship over, whether it be our family, whether it be our calling, whether it be those we minister to, whether it be you know, those that come within our, our circle of influence who, who have needs and we are able to, to touch them, uh, whatever that stewardship might be, you know, Alma's advice is, you know, call upon the Lord. Whatever you do, move forward, you know, trusting in the Lord that he is powerful and he is able to fulfill his promises to you that he has given to you with regards to whatever it is that you have stewardship over. So if your your family is struggling, if, if you're, you're, you feel challenged uh, in your calling, in your work assignments, whatever it is that the Lord is having you to do, call upon him, trust him that he will fulfill his words as you move forward in faith, uh, trusting uh, him and his ability to do what he promises that he will do. Now from there, Alma gives Helaman a, a warning uh, that there's these certain Jaredite records uh, that are part of the plates that they are preserving. And those records contain some things that should not be shared uh, because of the because they, they reveal the, the depravity and the evilness uh, of the Jaredite people uh, that are, are certainly not fulfilling and would potentially be damaging uh, or dangerous if, if they were to be uh, revealed, um, which, which is, you know, interesting idea. It makes, you know, the curious part of me wonders, you know, what are these ideas that are really just so terrible that, that uh, you know, they would bring about the destruction of, of the people if, uh, if they were included, if, if people had them. Um, you know, but we trust, and you know, we obviously don't have them. Uh, so, you know, we trust uh, Alma that, that he knew what he was talking about. Verses uh, 33 and 34 then. And, and here Alma is kind of shifting from the plates to teaching about Christ generally, where he says, Preach unto them repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to humble themselves and to be meek and lowly in heart. Teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to never be weary in good works, but to be meek and lowly in heart. For such shall find rest to their souls. You know, beautiful admonition here about as we teach others, we focus on faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what, you know, he says it twice in verse 33. To teach them faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and as teachers, that is something that is so important, you know, especially as we talk about the distinction between knowledge and faith. You know, you can, you can provide knowledge, you can, you know, give people facts and information, uh, that's helpful. But teaching people to have faith on Jesus Christ is a completely different endeavor. It's not a fact dump. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a process. It's, it's setting an example. It's, uh, you know, teaching by the Spirit. That is the only way that faith on Jesus Christ can ever be conveyed. It is not through uh, the sharing of information or various facts, um, but, but it's a completely different process in and of itself. 35 through 37. Oh, remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Ye learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. Yea, and cry unto God for all thy support. Yea, let all thy doings be unto the Lord. And whithersoever thou goest, let it be in the Lord. Yea, let all thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. 
Yea, let the affections of thy heart be placed upon the Lord forever. Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God. And if ye do these things, ye shall be lifted up at the last day. A more beautiful uh, admonition from a father to a son. Uh, you know, teaching, admonishing him, learn wisdom in thy youth. Learn it while you're young to keep the commandments of God. And again, that harks back to this idea that it's by small and simple things that great things are brought to pass. And if you can learn to do the small and simple things while you're young, it becomes so much easier uh, when you're old. Now, of course, this is, you know, interesting teaching coming from Alma because clearly when he was in his youth, he did not keep the commandments of God, but he did the opposite. And he clearly recognizes the, the pain that he had to go through uh, in order to repent. Uh, you know, the sorrow that he had because of the many murders, he says, that he committed as he led people away from God originally. Uh, so he, you know, speaking from experience, he recognizes the importance of, of getting things right uh, when you're young and getting started on that path and learning while you're young uh, to keep the commandments of God. Now, Alma closes his uh, lesson, his teaching to his son Helaman by talking about uh, the Liahona, uh, which I think is interesting, but, it, but it's beautiful uh, as he does so. Because he uses the liahona to, to describe the way in which, you know, as this instrument that guided Lehi and his family in their journey to the promised land. Uh, verses 39 through 41. And behold, there cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. And behold, it was prepared to show unto our fathers the course which they should travel in the wilderness. And it did work for them according to their faith in God. Therefore, if they had faith to believe that God could cause that those spindles should point the way they should go, behold, it was done. Therefore, they had this miracle and also many other miracles wrought by the power of God day by day. Nevertheless, because those miracles were worked by small means, it did show unto them marvelous works. They were slothful and forgot to exercise their faith and diligence. And then those marvelous works ceased and they did not progress in their journey. So, uh, you know, a lot going on here, actually. Uh, clearly, Alma's harking back to this idea of small and simple things. And he says, you know, you, you have this ball that provides directions and simply following those directions is, is something very simple. That's not hard to do. Uh, but what is hard to do is do that on a daily basis, especially when you cannot see the final destination and you're relying upon that faith. Uh, that, you know, the small and simple things then require, uh, you know, diligence and persistence and patience over time in order to bring about the miracle that, that God has in store. And, you know, as I, as I think about, especially verse 39, this idea that, uh, you know, there, there cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. It seems like to them this Leahona was this, you know, lightning bolt thing that came out of the blue that they simply cannot describe, cannot explain how it got there other than it came from God. And because of that, whenever, uh, you know, they, they have a struggle or whenever they're challenged or they can't, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling with faith and to think whether or not God is, is there and looking out for them, 
you know, that Leahona provides an example for them as evidence that yes, God is there directing them in their journey. And to me, I think we have something very similar in our day to day. And that is this Book of Mormon. I, I love the Book of Mormon for many, many reasons, but one of them is because I can't explain it because I don't know how it came about. I know what Joseph Smith said. Um, some of it is far beyond my realm of experience. I'll admit that. I've never found gold plates buried in a hill. I've never uh, used rocks as interpreters. I've never, uh, you know, dictated anything more than a paragraph, really, let alone a 500-page book. Uh, you know, and the idea that he did so while he put his head in a hat or whatever, the, you know, the different stories that are there. You know, some of them are strange to me, I'll admit, and I don't get them. But this result, I get that. And I have that. And I love it. I cannot explain where it came from. Chapter 36, which we just read, I think is a perfect example of this, the inexplicable nature of the Book of Mormon. You know, in some ways it is just a book. Thousands, millions of people throughout history have written books. What's special about this book? Why couldn't Joseph Smith or some of his associates written a book or taken other parts of other books and edited them together? That, that happens all the time. This is a simple thing. It's just a book. But as you get into it, you see it's so much more than just a book. But it really is something that, as they talk about the Liahona, cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. You know, this book is so unique. Look at the chiasmus structure in 36. Look at the different patterns throughout. It clearly ties back to something that is ancient, that is not 19th century upstate New York. To my mind, that is clear. And the lessons in it, oh my goodness, are so powerful and speak to my soul. I cannot explain how we got this book. I don't understand it. But here it is. But it's here. And the only thing that I can, the only thing that makes sense to me is it is a gift from God. And so if I don't study that book, then I am ignoring a gift from God. It's my obligation. It's my duty to study it and to love it and to follow it. Just as Lehi and his family followed the Liahona. They don't understand where it came from. It was this curious workmanship. It doesn't make any sense, but there it was. And they knew that as long as they followed it, the Lord would lead and guide them in their journey. Just as long as we read and study the Book of Mormon and follow its teachings, they will lead us in our journeys here on this earth, leading us back to Jesus Christ, who then through his grace and his power leads us back to the presence of our heavenly father. Verses 45 and 46. And now I say, is there not a type in this thing? For just as surely as this director did bring our fathers by following its course to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. And my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. For so was it with our fathers, for so was it prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us, the way is prepared, and if we will look, we may live forever. It's a simple thing to open your Book of Mormon and to read it. It's a simple thing. And to do it every day, that's a very small and simple thing. 
But by doing so, great power comes into our lives, as Elder Benson taught. And it will lead us back to our promised land where we can live with our heavenly parents and with our families forever. That's what the book is intended for. Just as the Liahona was intended to lead Lehi and his family to their promised land, this book of curious workmanship that I cannot explain is intended for the sole purpose of leading us back to the presence of our heavenly parents. Chapter 38. And again, we shift now from Alma's uh, teachings to his son Helaman. And now we quickly get uh, a short chapter that's directed at Shiblon, who we know was, was a righteous son. So again, my guess is that he said a lot more than just what we have recorded here. But uh, either Alma or Mormon didn't want to repeat everything. <clears throat> so we get somewhat abbreviated version. But there's still some, a few beautiful teachings that we'll spend uh, a few minutes discussing, starting in verse 9 with Alma's very simple and powerful testimony. And now, my son, I have told you this, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn of me that there is no other way or means whereby man can be saved, only in and through Christ. Behold, he is the light and the life and light of the world. Behold, he is the tr- word of truth and righteousness. A simple yet powerful testimony of Christ from Alma. And we know from verses 30, from chapter 36 how that testimony came about. But I love the simpleness of it here. There is no other way or means whereby man can be saved. When you're in that predicament that Alma found himself in 36, chapter 36, or when you recognize that you're in that predicament, because we're all in the same dangerous situation, the question isn't whether or not we need to be saved. The question is whether or not we recognize that we need to be saved. And once we make that recognition, it is only through Christ that we can have that turning point in our lives and that that sorrow, that desire to, to, to hide from the presence of God because of our sins turns to joy and the desire to be with God again. Uh, verses 10 through 12. And now as ye have begun to teach the word, even so I would that ye should continue to teach. And I would that ye would be diligent and temperate in all things. See that ye are not lifted up unto pride. Yea, see that ye do not boast in your own wisdom, nor of your much strength. Use boldness, but not overbearance, and also see that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. See that ye refrain from idleness. A lot of just, you know, great fatherly wisdom here uh, that he's uh, sharing with his son Shiblon. Uh, Verse verse 10 I find to be striking as he says, uh, I would that ye would be diligent and temperate in all things. And the idea of being temperate implies moderation. So we're to be diligent to be working hard to be continually striving to choose righteousness and to keep the commandments of God but we're not to be extremists about it we're not to run faster than we have strength for we are to be temperate we are to be moderate we are to recognize and, and go about uh, you know in full recognition of the of the impact of our actions we are to uh, you know be, be careful in the things that we do we're not to run around with our hair on fire, uh, you know, calling everyone to repentance. We're not to, <clears throat> you know, spend, you know, 10 hours a day studying the scriptures. We're not to pray for two or three hours a day. There might be points in your life when, when something like uh, close to that might seem appropriate. But that's not supposed to be uh, the, the long-term path that we pursue. We're on a marathon here. 
uh, not a sprint. And so it's important for us to be, be temperate, uh, to be temperate in all things, um, to be a moderate in all things. I think what, what good, what wonderful fatherly advice. And then I love verse 12 here. We're commanded to bridle our passions that ye may be filled with love. And, you know, I, I think the way the world teaches us now is that passion and love are very similar things, right? You say, do what you're passionate about, uh, do what you love. But, you know, if, if you think about it, though, passion and love are in many ways opposites. You know, passion is, you know, that lack of temperance, really. It's, you know, going in gung-ho, uh, you know, w- without really thinking about the ramifications or the consequences because you've thrown caution to the wind and you're pursuing your passion. Um, you know, especially think of in, in, the, in, the, in, in terms of uh, romance, uh, you know, a, a, something is, someone is passionate for another person. You know, well, that might be okay for, for temporary, but to, uh, to not bridle your passion, to not control that passion, uh, can get in the way of love, as Alma teaches in verse 12. But we are to, to temper or to bridle our passions. We are to control them, not let them control us. Because if we do that, if these passions control us, there's no room for love. There's no room for charity. There's no room for that long-term endurance that requires faith in Jesus Christ. Enduring to the end is not a matter of passion, uh, but a matter of a matter of love. And so, you know, again, great fatherly advice here from Alma to his son, uh, to his son Shiblon. And then finally, verse fourteen: Do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren. But rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. And I think a great summary coming from someone who's well positioned to teach this method, this message. You know, think of the uh, the Zoramites. You, you had uh, those on their Ramiyamtum who said that they were better than everyone else and were not because of that. They would not hear the word of God. And then contrast that to the humble. Uh, Zoramites who were ready to hear the word of God. You know, that, that was, must have left a deep impression on Alma and probably Shiblam as well as he was likely there as he was teaching uh, the Zoramites. Uh, so Alma's counsel to, to be humble, otherwise you won't hear the word of God and acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. And again, that's basically the main message of, of today's chapters is that we are unworthy before God. And because of that, we should be humble. And, be, and if we're humble, we will hear the word of God and the word of God will tell us, call upon Jesus Christ to overcome your unworthiness. P- pray to him for his mercy and for his grace. And as you do so, he will send them. He will be there to support you in whatever afflictions you have. And eventually, just like the Liahona led Lehi and his family back to the presence of God, back to their promised land, so too will our faith in Jesus Christ lead us back to the presence of Heavenly Father to enjoy the presence of our Heavenly Parents with our families forever. And I pray that we will be humble, that we will remember our unworthiness before God, and that we will call upon Jesus Christ, uh, that he will save us. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.